Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Get clear on your why, have an intention, forgive yourself. If you don't have those things, every plan you make is not going to work. I think a lot of times women and people in general carry a lot of shame and embarrassment about the mistakes that they have made in the past. The past is the past. Reflect on it and say, okay, this is what happened. This is why I racked up all this debt. And then create your plan. Your goal is to get ahead of that interest by putting in more sand than that shovel can dig out. And that's making more additional payments whenever you can in excess of your minimum payment. So start by forgiving yourself. Start by creating your plan and then be consistent with working your plan. Plan means nothing without action. So focus on yourself. Focus on what is truly going to make you happy. Focus on what you want to accomplish for yourself. Don't let other people project their shame on you to keep you stuck. You've forgiven yourself. It's okay. Keep it moving. Bola Shakumbi is a money expert and the founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance. In today's episode, Bola shares her tips on how to build your wealth and how to succeed in today's world. I'm Erica Kohlberg, this is Erica Taught Me, and today we're here with Bola Shakumbi. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. Bola, I'm so excited to have you on. And I'm sure a lot of women come to you and they say, Bola, I really want to be better with my finances, but I don't know where to start. What do you usually tell them? 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And yes, a lot of women do come to me, to the Clever Girl Finance platform to, you know, to ask that same question. And the first place I tell them to start is just getting comfortable with the fact that you want to make change. I think a lot of times women and people in general carry a lot of shame and embarrassment about the mistakes that they have made in the past with money, or they feel like they are too far gone or they're too old or it's stupid not to know the basics about finances, which none of that is the case, right? You're mm-hmm. never too old. No questions are stupid. You can learn anything at any age. And so it's that acceptance and willingness to change is the first place to start and being open and also um, not shaming yourself, not judging yourself, and instead reflecting on the, le- the mistakes that you made because they did happen and taking the lessons you've learned from them to apply to going forward, to achieving those financial goals. And very importantly, not allowing other people to judge you. Because sometimes when people want to make change with their finances, they want to learn how to save, to pay off debt, to invest. There might be someone within their friends, family, community that's like, well, girl, you've always been in debt. Why is this going to be different? We're all meant to be in debt. Your whole family is broke. What do you think you're going to do differently? So you don't want to let other people shame you. And that means sometimes keeping your, your goals close to your chest, keeping them close to your heart so that you make the progress and you don't let other people diminish the progress you're making. Because in those early stages, the progress might be small. You might still make a few mistakes and you don't want to get that outside interference. Yeah. And I've often heard people say that a lot of times when others aren't doing well, they want to keep you down too. So if they see that you're trying to get better with your finances, trying to climb out of debt, they want to keep you down with them. Yeah. And sometimes it's not intentional, right? Mm -hmm. Because Uh, what happens is that people tend to project their own experiences, failures, and successes onto you. So let's say you are trying to pay off a ton of debt, and I have never been able to do that. I'm going to project my experience onto you and say, that's impossible. It's really difficult to do. I've never been able to do it. We're We're friends. We're in the same situation. We have the same backgrounds. You cannot do it. So that's what happens. People project their own experiences onto you. And sometimes it's not intentional. It's not to hurt you, but it's just based on who they are and what they've been through. So again, not everyone needs to be in the know of what you're trying to accomplish. So let's say that someone is in credit card debt and has felt a lot of shame around that. What is kind of the first thing that they should do while keeping it maybe close to the chest and not showcasing to everyone that, hey, I'm going to get out of credit card debt? Mm -hmm. So whatever reasons you are in credit card debt, forgive yourself. (laughs) You may have gone on a shopping spree. You may have been eating out. You may have been irresponsible. It could have been actual serious, you know, situations. You lost your job. You leveraged your credit card for emergencies because you didn't have any savings. Whatever it might be, just... The past is the past. Reflect on it and say, okay, this is what happened. This is why I racked up all this debt. This is what I've learned. And then create your plan. Um, And it's, you know, what you probably talk about very often, which is laying out all of your debts, prioritizing them by what's either the highest balance or the highest interest rates, and then focus on paying more than the minimum to that top priority debt. And then just staying consistent as you make progress. The key to getting out of debt is never the amount of debt, right? Because if I owed $10,000 and there was not a single percent of interest charged on it, even if I make a dollar payment every now and then, that debt is going to go down. The issue is interest and how it compounds, whether it's compounding daily, weekly, monthly. It's that compounding. It's almost like 
you have this hole, right? Which is your dent. It's a hole mm-hmm. in the ground. And you are using a spoon to fill it in, <laughs> which are your minimum payments. And there's this automatic shovel, which is just digging, digging everything out. That's the interest, right? So your goal is to get ahead of that interest by putting in more sand than that shovel can dig out. And that's making more additional payments whenever you can in excess of your minimum payment. So start by forgiving yourself, start by creating your plan, and then be consistent with working your plan. And it's not that you don't share with anybody, right? You want to find the right people because we all need that level of accountability. We all need that level of motivation from other people. So you find the people that have either done what you're trying to do or in the process of doing what you are doing, you don't want to share with people who are like, girl, no, yeah, <laughs> you can't do this because you can. It's so interesting too that you bring up how tied emotions are to finances because it is very funny. You'll hear these personal finance experts say, you have to do this. Or like, it's better to invest than pay off your debt. But what's not accounted for a lot of times is the emotions. I know when I was in $200,000 of debt, I didn't care that maybe it was financially optimal to invest rather than pay off the debt. I just did not like the feeling of that weight on my shoulders. I didn't want that debt to be weighing on me anymore. So that's why I chose to get out of debt, even though maybe looking back, it would have been better to invest in the S&P 500 during those years. But they don't account for the emotions. Yes. You know, if there were no emotions involved with finances, everybody would do what they have to do. And we would all be financial successes. Right. But emotions are just they're, they're part of human nature. Right. You can't avoid feeling sad, depressed, angry, jealous, uh, especially when it comes to money. Right. Just take a look at your social media feed. There's probably some of the images that you scroll past. and You're like, oh, my God, I wish I was that person. Oh, wow. They get to do that. Or, wow, I wish I had done that. Right. It, you have to deal with your emotions. And then you add on things like fear and anxiety, mm-hmm. with, especially with money, especially during you know, crazy economic times or even personal situations. Right. You lose a job. Add on those emotions. And sometimes being objective gets thrown out the window. So you have to be able to create a balance of your emotions and your uh, being objective and putting your finances and what you want to accomplish with your finances into perspective. And I think it's important to recognize and embrace those emotions. Like I cry, I'm a crier, right? Uh, But then you don't want, you know, your, your emotions to be to derail you or to become the crux of why you're not doing something right. So when I have to cry, I cry it out. But then I'm like, you know what? It's time to stop. I've let the emotions out. And now let's get back to being objective. Because once you allow yourself to feel and express your emotions, even if it's for a short time, and you allow that release to happen, then you give yourself the opportunity to be objective, right? Mm -hmm. And take the necessary action. So it's okay to feel the emotions, but then you want to recognize them and work around them. You don't want to get stuck in a woe is me pity party. And you certainly don't want the emotions and the woe is me pity party to attract other woe are us (laughs) pity party havers. Because then it's harder to end that party and get back to business. Yeah, so true. For the people who come to you and are able to successfully climb out of debt, for instance, what are the traits that you see that they have in common? So the women who have successfully come out of debt, you know, by leveraging maybe a clever girl finance resource or something, commonalities I see are consistency and intention. They have a why. 
behind what there's something that's driving them. Right. And even when they stumble, because when you make a plan, you're going to stumble. Life is going to happen. You're going to get derailed. Things will happen that will just throw you off your plan. And then these women will pick themselves back up and keep going. It's the why. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's incredibly important to have when you start any financial journey. Why are you doing this? Why do you want this so badly? And how bad do you want this for yourself? And that why is not tied to other people's expectations. It should not be. It shouldn't be tied to standards, right? Because there's a lot of standards out in the world. There's standards, especially for women, um, <laughs> when you should get married, when you should have kids. Kids, oh, you don't want to get married or you don't want to have kids. Um, how much you should be earning by this age, when you should have bought your first house. Those are other people's expectations mm -hmm. for you. And sometimes those expectations come from people closest to your family members. But your why is not should not be tied to that. Your why should be tied to what's truly going to make you happy, what you truly want for yourself, that getting over this hurdle of paying off debt or saving a certain amount of money or creating a certain kind of lifestyle, right, can help you get to. So I see the intention, the why, and then once that why is in place, the consistency, right? Because it's one thing to create a plan, Right. A plan means nothing without action. Yeah. So taking the action and taking consistent action around it, even when you stumble. That's mm -hmm. what I that's what I see consistently. We spoke a little earlier about how a lot of people feel like, oh, it's too late. I feel behind in my life. If I look at my peers who are also 45, there's so much more ahead of me. What do you say to that? You know, don't get caught up in that because when you pull off the blinders, <laughs> <laughs> you peel off some of the paint. <laughs> It's not always what it's seen. So focus on yourself. Focus on what is truly going to make you happy. Focus on what you want to accomplish for yourself. There's no age associated to anything that you want to do, regardless of what social media or certain standards may be telling you. Don't get caught up because what happens is that when you start focusing on what other people have done by a certain age, uh, you're distracted. Instead of focusing on what you need to do over here, you're now looking at these other people over there. Before you know it, you become one of those people who's perpetually on Instagram scrolling to see what other people are doing that you're not taking the actions for yourself. So sometimes it's hard to let go of that comparison. But one thing I've learned is that comparison is the thief of joy. Mm -hmm. The more you compare yourself, the unhappier you are. So just focus on what's going to make you happy. The age here is irrelevant, right? Because at the end of the day, taking action now, leveraging your time now to improve yourself means that you can get what you want to get done sooner rather than later, right? So you might be 45 or 55 or 65. And as opposed to looking at what other people are doing, you could be taking actions now so that you can make progress in a year, in 18 months and 24 months, right? What happens to a lot of people is that the, the year, the 18 months or 24 months comes by and they haven't done anything because they're so focused on what other people are doing. Yeah. For the credit card debt example that we used, that I feel like within the personal finance community is universally a good thing to do. Let's get out of credit card debt because you, you can't win that battle. What are some views that you have on personal finance that you think are different from what the general personal finance community feels? So, <laughs> you know, I think there's, I feel like there's, I don't have a, a philosophy. There's no clever old finance philosophy. There's no Bola Shokumbi philosophy. There is no, this is the way you must do it. I believe that there's a reason why it's called personal finance is because it's personal to each individual. And you talked about you paying off the $200,000 and the emotions that came into play as to why you decided to do that as opposed to investing $200,000, right? So for me, it's, 
there are many different paths to getting to your financial success, your financial destination, and it's based on what works for you, right? So I, I don't say there's only one way to budget. This is the best way to budget. There's different ways to budget. Do what works best for you. There's different ways to invest. You don't only have to invest in the stock market. Maybe you don't want to invest in the stock market, but here are other options. Take a look at these and pick what works best for you, right? You don't have to have a joint account with your partner, right? <laughs> the joint account is not is not what makes your marriage work. It's the communication and the honesty and the transparency, right? So there's a lot of within each of those categories where I see financial experts saying this is what you must do. This is how you must do it. Otherwise, you know, I'm my philosophy is what works best for you, right? Yeah. Create your own plan, structure your own plan. For some people, it's like, you know what? Before I pay off my debts, I need to have $10,000 saved because that gives me peace of mind, knowing that if I lose my job, I have money saved. So I'm going to save this money and then shift all my focus to paying off my debts. That works for you. That's fine. And you, I've seen so many stories of people who manage or structure their financial journeys in less conventional ways, and they still have the same outcome of financial success. Um, the other thing I will say that differs is there's no one definition of financial success, right? People talk a lot about the FIRE movement. <laughs> I don't participate <laughs> by trust because what does that really mean, right? Um, financial independent, retire early, sure. But then I run a business full time. I'm not retired. I'm, I'm financially independent, <laughs> but I'm not retired. But I guess I have the choice. But I don't like to get into any of those arguments because again, it's up to each individual. You do what works best for you and um, you make it work that way. I agree that personal finance is personal. There is no one path that fits everyone. Mm -hmm. But some people I know just want this formula. They want to be able to say, okay, the first step is do this. Save mm -hmm. $1,000. The second step is do this. What's the closest thing to a formula that you can give the audience? Formulas are great, right? If you're able to follow the, the blueprint and it works for you, that's great. But don't feel like you have to be stuck in this blueprint. You can readjust your blueprint, right? So the first thing is get clear on your why, right? Have an intention. Forgive yourself. Those are, those are two foundational aspects. If you don't have those things, every plan you make is not going to work. You're going to start it and then stop it and then start it and then get derailed. So get clear on your why. Forgive yourself for those mistakes, Create your plan, right? And that plan could be starting with creating a baseline emergency savings account, right? Of maybe put $1,000, $1,500 in there to cover your most basic emergencies that could temporarily derail you. So a water heater breaks, your car breaks down, you need new tires, you need to buy an emergency plane ticket for to go see a family member, stuff like that, right? And then focus on creating a debt repayment plan if you have debt that you want to pay off prioritizing that debt by highest balance, right? Or by highest interest rate, paying more than the minimum, which you talked about before. Once that's in place, creating a plan to invest, well, creating a plan to save more, to bulk up your emergency savings. So you, you have more of a buffer where you feel comfortable, where you can now cover expenses if you were to lose your job for a few months and then starting to invest. However, you can do all these things in tandem, right? So people get mad at me when I say that you can save and you can invest at the same time, because let's say you're paying off student loans, right? But your employer offers you a 401k plan and they're giving you a 5% match, a 6% match. I've heard companies that give 10% matches. That is free money. Listen, Take the free money, right? A lot of times it's happening before taxes. So when you run the calculations of how is this going to change my post-tax income, 
the difference might not even be that significant because you're contributing every two weeks. Take the free money mm-hmm. and continue your aggressive debt pay down or savings approach. But that's a way you can save and invest at the same time. Your employer doesn't have a plan. Maybe you decide, you know what, I'm going to put 5% of my income towards retirement savings or 10% of my income towards retirement savings. And I'm going to look at my budget, look at my finances and see where can I recover this 10% from so I can put it towards debt. And that can mean that there's things that you, you stop doing, you get out of your comfort zone to stop doing for a period of time so that you can get out of your debt, right? And then save and then invest and then come back to those things later. Uh, people get mad at me when I say, um, take a break from your hairdresser. <laughs> Do, I mean, so if you get your hair cut every two weeks, so I go to the hairdresser every two weeks, but you could go once a month. I know how to do my own hair. I learned how to do it in the pandemic. I did not go to my hairdresser for six whole months. And guess what? My husband cut my hair. I figured out how to relax it. I knew how to curl it. I made it work and I saved so much money, right? Maybe you don't go to the nail salon <laughs> every two weeks. Maybe you don't go out to eat. Maybe you don't need to have Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, HBO. Like have one, have two and put the difference towards paying off your debt. That's how you recover that 10% that you said, you know what, I want to invest this while I pay off my debt. So there is, there are formulas, but then you can make your hybrids and readjustments of this based on what's going to work for you and how how quickly you want to achieve your goals, right? You could also decide, you know what, I'm going to get a part-time job. I'm going to downsize. I'm going to sell as many things in my house as possible to put all this money towards saving or investing or paying down debt. So the blueprint is there because it's a baseline guide for you, but you can modify it and adjust it based on what you want to accomplish and how quickly you want to accomplish it. So let's talk about the investing part. What do you say for people who just want to get started in investing and have no idea where to start, what to start with, what to invest in? So I think it's worthwhile understanding the basics of how investing works. Like, you know, when you are on social media, (laughs) um, investing can be super sexy or super scary, right? Depending on who you're following, what you're seeing. And it can also be very... um, FOMO. Oh my God, I'm not investing in cryptocurrency. Oh my God, there's another cryptocurrency millionaire. Oh my God. Right. So it's really important that I, it's worth picking up an investing 101 book, watching an investing 101 video, going to your library and looking at investing 101 content. And the reason why I say it's worth this time is because this is money that you've worked so hard for. You've exchanged your time for these dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you take a little bit of time, even if it's like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just to understand the basics of what is the stock market? How does real estate work? What is cryptocurrency, right? Just having that baseline. And then it gives you a level, the more you know about how investing works, the less of an uninformed risk it is and the more of a calculated strategic risk it is. Because investing is risky, that's foundational. But once you have a bit of insight, you are able to manage the type of risk you take on, right? As opposed to investing blindly. Now you know that, okay, you know what? I prefer investing in the stock market versus investing in real estate versus investing in cryptocurrency. Or you know what? I actually at the idea of investing in small business. Or you know what? I'm going to diversify my investments across all these different categories. But now you're able to make those decisions and manage your risk because you have an understanding of how these categories work. And then for someone who has done that, right? And you're now like, okay, I have $500. I have $1,000, right? That you want to invest of your hard earned money. People mm-hmm. will say, oh, $500 is too small. No, it's not too small, right? Again, going back to what I've been saying, consistency, consistently investing, you help, you're adding on to your stockpile every time you put money in. So 
the key for, for people who are starting, who want to start is how do I diversify this small amount as widely as possible, right? So it's going back to that saying of don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you have $500, then don't put the whole $500 in one stock, right? Maybe you put it in an index fund, which has a variety of thousands of different stock investments that helps spread your money across. And every time you add more money, you continue to diversify. Or you decide that, you know what, I do like individual stocks. So as opposed to putting all your money into one stock, Tesla, for example, you decide, okay, I'm going to put 5% in Tesla, then in Apple, then in, uh, in, in, I don't know, not all in the same industry segment, but in different categories. I'm going to put some in technology. Mm-hmm. I put some in healthcare. I put some in consumer goods. Oh, what kind of... Um, you know, investments do I like? Let me put some money in there. So it's kind of like now I'm teaching my children how to invest. And we go to Costco. They love Costco. So I'm like, oh, you know what? Let's buy some Costco stock. That's retail. My son loves sneakers now, right? So let's buy some Nike stock, right? That's apparel. <laughs> my daughter loves Scholastic. They do uh, media, kids entertainment. Let's buy some of that media stuff, right? And my son's like, oh, I like fast cars. Let's get some Tesla. So that's a way to diversify based on what you like and what you're familiar with using. Because in one way or the other, you have your kind of your ears and your eyes to how this company is performing, right? So I shop at Costco all the time. If I go in there and I see that things are not just great, that can help me, you know, think, is this company having issues? Do I need to realign where I'm investing? So again, it's all about that broad diversification. After you've spent some time to understand how it works, right? Educate yourself, decide where you feel most comfortable with, diversify. And if you need to, again, spend some time seeking help or counsel from like a financial planner and advisor just to get some insights as to how things work. I think that's also worth your time because you work so hard for this money, right? And you're putting your money into a risk-based entity, which is investing. Why wouldn't you spend this time at the beginning to just get some information so you can go from, like I said, that uninformed decision-making to now calculated and strategic decision-making? If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Yeah. I love what you were also saying about how you're teaching your kids to start to think about, oh, this company, you can buy ownership in it. Mm -hmm. 
what else are you doing to set your kids up for financial success in the future? I'm teaching them responsibility about money. That's so important because we can invest all we want. And once that money hits a significant amount and they get older, they can blow that money in a day. There's no amount of money you cannot spend in a day, okay? Uh, I can go buy a G450, a G750 <laughs> for $50 million <laughs> in one day. That's a private jet, right? I can buy my own island for a few hundred million in a single day. I will, people are always like, how can somebody spend, like when you hear about lottery winners, how can they spend all this money? You can spend all this. I will tell you, there are ways to spend all of this money. People will help you spend your money. Um, so I'm <laughs> teaching them responsibility. Uh, I started, I have eight-year-old twins, which I had mentioned to you earlier before we started recording. And I started giving them pocket money and we started with a dollar a week. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot, but it's helping them understand the concepts and the value. So if you save your dollar, you can get something worth $2 next week, or you can buy two fifty cent candies and that's it, right? So they're starting to learn, right, I can save to get something else. Um, and I can do chores. Well, I don't like to pay for chores. So I'm like, you have to do them because you live in this house. That's part of your obligation to living here for free. <laughs> but you know what? I'll be nice and give you some money. Not because... You know, don't get it twisted. You are going to do this anyway, but I'm just helping you learn about money. <laughs> so that kind of stuff. So I'm teaching them about responsibility. I'm also teaching them about um, giving back, right, and helping other people. So now you're in a position of knowledge. You learn, you're learning how to, to budget. You're learning how to save. You're learning how to manage your pocket money. You're learning how to invest. How can you help other people who have less than you? And I think those different things will help to create a wholesome individual, especially when it comes to... Um, finances, right? So I won't deny that my children are in a position of privilege at this point, right? Because one of the things that have been most important for my husband and I is creating generational wealth. But I want them to grow up now knowing how to manage this and then extend that generational wealth to their own children and beyond their own children and also giving back in their communities to leverage the knowledge and the privilege that they have in a grander scale to create broader impact. So that's really important to me. And it starts with that responsibility of a dollar, um, understanding how it works, understanding the value of hard work. This is not being handed to you. And that's what my parents taught me, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I come from a background where my parents are first generation everything. First to go to grade school, first to get formally educated, um, first to have, you know, these different types of opportunities. They, they both come from backgrounds of poverty. And so the lessons they passed on to me about responsibility with money and giving back to others are the same lessons I'm passing down to my kids. Wow. In my audience, we, we do have a lot of parents and I always see that parents want the best for their kids before even themselves. They're not asking me, oh, how can I be better with my money? They're asking, how can I help my kids be better with their money? What accounts do I need to set up for them? Do you have any specific tips as to what kind of accounts parents should be setting up for the kids or what else they should be doing besides the important part of teaching them financial responsibility? Mm -hmm. So I'm still learning, right? I've never taught kids about money before. Like I teach women and <laughs> grownups about money all day long, but children, this is new to me. And I'm learning as my kids grow old. So they have five to nine Bs, college savings accounts, and they have their individual brokerage accounts where they invest their money. We get, they get small amounts of money every week and then they invest. So those are two things uh, that we help them do. I think when they, once they turn 10, I'm going to open checking accounts for them and have them have uh, debit cards that are tied to like my debit card where I can control it. There, I think there are accounts like that. I've seen those yeah. uh, where 
they can now pay because when we go to the grocery store, my daughter's like, mom, give me the card. I want to pay. So when they get to age 10, I will do that. Uh, so I think those are good places to start. The 529B college savings, uh, brokerage accounts, you can open them in, in their name from when they're born and then checking accounts as well. I think those are good accounts for kids to have, but then involving them in the process. But just going back to what you said about, you know, parents want to give their children the best of everything. I think it's also important to be able to say no. I've been in that position where it's like, oh my God, you know, my kids really want this. They're asking me for this, but why do you need it? Right. Just because you can have it doesn't mean that you, you, you need it. Right. And it's not giving them, you know, when I don't want them to have this, like I can have whatever I want type of mentality. Cause no, you didn't work for this. I work for this. You need to get a job first and you can work for this, right? You can get this. So I have this conversation with my kids a lot where I say no. And the reason why I'm saying no is because you, you eight year old, you can't afford that. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you don't have it. You don't have the money. You don't have a job and I don't feel like buying it for you. So having them learn no is also important because they don't have that, you know, idea of, you know, I can get it all, whatever. And I've seen kids that do that. And it's like, well, my mom will buy it for me. Well, my daddy can get it for me. Well, I live in a mansion. No, you don't. Your parents live in a mansion. <laughs> <laughs> You're a border. Okay. You don't own that. <laughs> and I see that happen a lot, you know, and I'm like, no, these are not going to be my kids. Nope. We're not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no. The answer is no. Okay. <laughs> it it is definitely important to set those boundaries, I'm sure. We were talking earlier about how much shame is associated with some of the money decisions that we've all made in our lives. For you personally, what are the money decisions that you had to forgive yourself for? <laughs> there are many of them. <laughs> I mean, oh gosh, I've made so many mistakes of money. And the, before the forgiveness even came, it was more like, oh my God, what a stupid decision. How stupid was this decision? I remember when I was first learning how to invest, back when I first graduated from college, and I was just, I was like a gambler. I was so impatient. Like, as soon as the stock went up, I would buy it. And then when it went down, I would sell it. I was losing so much money. It made no sense. But to me, it was like, oh my God, this is a scam. Oh my God, they're stealing my money. Oh my God, why is it going down? And I would sell and I would lose this money and I would see it going up. I'm like, oh, this is a good investment and I would buy. So I had to change behavior, adjust mindset, understand how investing worked. So I was investing without understanding how investing worked, which you talked about. I was blowing my hard-earned money. <laughs> So I really had to come to terms with that and then forgive myself and say, okay, you know what, Bola, you made some stupid mistakes. It's time to forgive yourself um, and really assess the mistakes. What went wrong? Why were you behaving like that? Where, why were you making emotionally driven investment decisions? And really then express my emotion, but then now be objective and create a strategy, which I said before. So I've, I've made mistakes like that. Uh, one of my most uh, famous mistakes it was my Chanel handbag collection, which... Depending on how you look at it, I think it's a mistake. Some people don't. So Chanel handbags right now are in the ten to $12,000 range Oh my goodness. in 2022. When I was buying Chanel handbags, they were like $2,800 for the exact same bag. That's probably That was probably better quality back then. And I had several. And I had gotten to the point where I reached one of my first big savings milestones. So my other claim to fame is my $100,000 saving story. And I was like, I've saved hundred and something thousand dollars. I'm going to buy a nice bag. And I bought a Chanel bag. And over the years, I would buy additional Chanel bags. And for me, it was a mistake because even today, $2,800 is not cheap compared to 
12,000, it's relative, but it's, it's still an expensive handbag. I could have been putting that extra money into investing. And I was like, you know what? I'm investing anyway. So I'll keep, I'll just buy another bag. And I feel like it's fine to buy what you like, right? Your thing might be cars, might be watches, might be shoes, might be traveling, might be handbags. Like it was for me, kind of still is though. Um, (laughs) But it has to make sense. And for me, where it stopped making sense was that the only handbag I was really using was that first handbag I bought. So I was building this collection and I was not using these bags. So first of all, my costs per wear was so high. There were sitting thousands of dollars worth of handbags sitting in my closet And my husband was like, these bags are so ugly, first of all. (laughs) And I would look in my closet. And after a while, I started seeing, instead of the handbags, I'd see dollar bills stacked up. (laughs) So I decided to sell the handbags. I sold every single one of them for more than what I bought it. The bag I I bought for $2,800, I think I sold it for close to $6,000 because of the Chanel price increases. So people will be like, okay, well, Bola, you made profits from selling all these bags. But then when I computed the, the, the calculations, like if I had bought Amazon stock back then, <laughs> it would have been like a 300% return <laughs> on my investments, right? So I had to be like, okay, you know what? Forgive yourself. I do like bags, but not in excess. If I'm not going to use it, why do I own it? So yeah. What am I collecting for whom? Right. So that's another example. And, you know, these, you know, and I've made other mistakes, you know, like real estate investing, more costly mistakes. I, I made all kinds of money mistakes. This could be the whole podcast episode. <laughs> but, you know, the, the key for me is really reflecting back and not letting that be the reason why I don't do something again right? Why I don't invest, why I allow it to be okay for myself to buy another handbag, right? It's reflecting on those mistakes, understanding what went wrong, understanding what I didn't like about them, what didn't feel good to me, leveraging those lessons as I take my next steps. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of people have shamed me for my mistakes. I did a podcast last year and we talked about this Chanel handbag mistake. We talked about it. It's, you know, it's kind of fun. It's, it's a lighthearted conversation. A lot of women can relate to this because we like handbags, even if it's not designer handbags. And after the podcast ended and they did their intro, outro recording, they said, how ridiculous is she? Right. So we've had this conversation. Then you continue, you go on to shame me. And I think sometimes uh, for me, I wasn't phased by that because, you know, I'm used to this game. <laughs> but for someone else, that could be a stumbling block for them. Where it's like, oh, you know what? They retreat and they're like, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to. It can hinder them in their steps when somebody else says it about you. So one thing I just wanted to add that it's it's really important that you do not allow other people to shame you once you've recognized and acknowledged your mistakes. It has happened. You know, it has happened. You've addressed it. You've learned your lessons. Whatever you think about it is your business. Don't don't let other people then now, you know, project their shame on you to keep you stuck. You've forgiven yourself. It's okay. Keep it moving. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. 
There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. Yeah, love that. What are some splurges you have now that you can justify that you're very happy with? Her handbag collection. <laughs> well, not collection. I have much fewer handbags with my handbags. I love my handbags. I use them very often. Cost per wear is low. Good. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah. <laughs> but it is so true what you're saying. Like, I never think it's okay for anyone to shame anyone else's financial decisions. Because, first of all, everyone makes mistakes. And so it's silly for one person to think that they're just the pinnacle of good decisions in finance because that's not true. Yeah. And you know what I find is that people like to judge what on based on what doesn't appeal to them. So my thing is handbags, right? Um, I don't like being away from home much. People love to travel. And I'm married to someone who we're both home, homebodies. So like I remember one time we, where did we tra- went to Paris and Austria and two days after we're like, oh my God, I want to go home. <laughs> it was nice being there, but we wanted to go home. So travel is not my thing. I do enjoy traveling, but I'm not going to take, you know, I'm not going to go on a tour around Europe for six months. That's never going to be me. I'm always going to want to come home. So I spend my money where I enjoy, and there's no shame in that. Um, your thing could be super frivolous to somebody else, right? You might like, I don't know, board games. You might like collecting baseball cards. That makes you happy. But it's all about creating balance, right? Um, At what cost are you doing this travel? Are you doing this um, handbag collecting, jewelry collecting, baseball card collecting? As long as it's not in detriment to your financial goals and your financial wellness, then it's fine because at the end of the day, life is about balance. Yeah. You are not here to just save and pay off debt and die. You want to live a good life. You're working so hard. You're going through all kinds of things that life is throwing at you. You want to enjoy your life. And if it's a certain experience or owning a certain thing that makes you enjoy your life, living in a certain city, um, whatever it might be, right? Buying a special pillow, buying a massage, whatever it might be. Um, be okay with it because there there are certain sects of, sects of the financial community yeah. where it's like, don't enjoy yourself. Spend no money. Be as frugal as possible. And that's fine if that's what makes you happy. But if it doesn't, it's okay too. It's so true. I've gone from being very intense. When I was in law school, <laughs> one of the stories I tell is to save money on tissues, like facial tissues, I would always rip them in half. So the box would last me twice as long. Like I would rip the facial tissue in half. Obviously, I'm not to that level now. I've found a nice balance where I spend on what I want and don't spend on the things I'm not that interested in. But it is a balance. Yeah. And I think we've all gone through those phases where we have a why and we're so intense on that why we really go a little crazy. Like I was a ramen noodles girl when I was saving money. Like I refused to buy groceries and ramen noodles were like three for a dollar. I was as skinny as this. <laughs> Listen, ramen noodles. I would get to work so early and I'll go to all the admins. Is somebody having a retirement party? Is there a baby shower? <laughs> Is there a goodbye lunch? And they, it got to a point where they would, they knew me. So they would email me, hey girl, 
in conference room 202, come by at 1230. <laughs> There's going to be free lunch. And I would pack my lunch. I would pack my dinner. I would check all the breakfast meetings to see what bagels are left over. That was me because I was trying to save and I just did not value food. <laughs> It was either free or ramen. <laughs> that was me, right? So I've been there, right? And again, we all are in that space where we want something so bad enough that we're going to do, we're going to tear the tissue in half. We're going to yeah. be as cheap and <laughs> as frugal as possible. But when do you not, when you now get beyond that thing you, you wanted to accomplish, you're now there. Yeah. It's okay to live a little. It is. Like I said, you want to, the, the last thing you want to feel is, when you watch those videos of people who are older and they talk about their regrets, their regrets are never about, I wish I didn't enjoy my life. I wish I didn't do these things that made me happy. No. So how do you create that balance of pursuing your financial wellness and living a good life without ruining your financial wellness? Right? You have to create that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can do that aggressive focus on your why for a short period of time, for a few years. You, everybody can do that. I think everybody has it in them. But if you choose to make it a lifestyle, it has to be because that, that is what truly makes you happy. You're, you're okay with this lifestyle. You're happy doing this. And there are people who are, but don't do it just because you feel obligated or you feel guilty or you feel shamed because you want to do something and, oh, what are people going to say? You don't care what people are going to say. Yeah. Or you shouldn't care what people are going to say. People are always going to say something. <laughs> they always will. <laughs> always. <laughs> I want to transition to talking about what you have done with Clever Girl Finance. You've helped and empowered so many women with their finances. Where did this all start for you? Oh, my God. So I studied computer science in college. I have a minor in business. No intention of getting into the personal finance space whatsoever. But I think it started out of my own personal need of wanting to figure out my finances. So, you know, my parents are immigrants. I'm also an immigrant to the U.S. And the cost of my college came at a very high expense, right? My, my mom supported me through college with, a, with me getting a partial scholarship. And it wasn't because she had stacks of money sitting on her money tree in the back of her house. It was because I couldn't qualify for student loans as an international student and we had already asked family members to co-sign student loans for my brother. So my mom was working and paying like it was from her paycheck to my college tuition in addition to my scholarships. So for me, coming out of college, I just I needed to make money. I needed to earn money. I needed to know how to use my money well just to make my parents proud and to show them that your investment in me, you know, at the expense of your retirement fund and all these things to send me to college was not a waste. So I remember wanting to just figure out finances. And I went into a bookstore and for some reason I was looking for a personal finance book for women. That was just, I wanted a book for women. I couldn't find anything. I found books on wills and trust. I found general personal finance, finance 101. And then there was one personal finance book for women that was written by a white man. And I was like, hmm, okay, sure. (laughs) I'll buy it. It was an excellent book. I love the book. I read it to shreds, bought it again. But I was like, why, why, why is the number one best-selling book for women written by a guy? So that was one thing. And then learning how to improve my finances, making mistakes along the way. I got to a point where I had saved a good amount of money. 
I decided I wanted some professional help to make sure I was on the right path. Again, I'm an immigrant. I'm learning about the U.S. system of investing. I'm learning about U.S. credit. Every All these concepts are new to me. And these are not concepts my parents could help me with because they also were not familiar with the U.S. financial system. So I go to a financial advisor and he his line of questioning was just very weird. He was like, am I married? Um, where did I get this money? And he was very condescending in a way that it felt like, who are you and why are you here? And how do you have this money? So I left that meeting feeling very upset. And I was like, I'm going to figure this out for myself. So there, there was that wanting to do well, figuring out money by myself, and then just starting to have conversations with friends and coworkers about money. And I, I love to talk about money, <laughs> what I'm buying, how I'm saving, how I'm investing. I like to share. Mm-hmm. So I started a little blog and I would talk about buying my designer handbags and also investing and what I was investing in. And I built a small community there. As I got older, I started to realize that there were things that I had observed with my mom growing up that were not happening to me. So my mom got married when she was 19 years old. She had a high school diploma. My dad had a PhD. He was in his 30s. And, you know, as she was getting older, she would see things like her friends losing a spouse and having no idea about the family finances, a friend wanting to leave an abusive marriage and not being able to leave because they didn't have any financial options. And I remember as a little girl, multiple times being in the corner of our living room and watching my mom console a friend whose husband was beating her because she had nowhere else to go. And so my mom took it upon herself after she had me that she was going to go back to college and get her college degree and be able to achieve her own financial independence just in case. My parents have been married for over 50 years now, but she wanted to have that level of security for herself because she was seeing all of these things happen. Um, And she also had a really sad situation with her best friend committing suicide because she didn't have options. She couldn't exit a relationship. So um, I saw that growing up. And as I I got older, I started seeing friends who wanted to leave a relationship and they can't because... They don't know anything about finances or they're too embarrassed about finances or, you know, they're settling for certain things because they don't have financial options. So I started to see that and I was like, you know what, this is an opportunity to talk more about money. And at the same time, I had just given birth to my own kids and I think I was going through postpartum depression where I was feeling very unfulfilled. I was feeling like I didn't have something that mattered to me outside of being mom. Uh, and that kind of sounds weird because my kids do matter to me. But for, for women who have experienced postpartum depression, you know what I'm talking about, where it's like you're giving all of yourself. But then what about me? And I didn't feel like my work valued me. My job valued me. Even though I loved what I did, I just felt like it wasn't tangible enough. It wasn't like, what do I do here that is changing lives? What do I do here that's so important that cannot be replaced immediately? So from there, I started brainstorming and all of those things over many years, all these things happened over many years, uh, were things that kind of led me to the place of, I should do something that empowers women around wellness and more specifically financial wellness based on my own experiences of having to figure it out, based on watching my mom having to figure it out because my mom eventually got her college degree I went with her to her college classes. She got her master's degree. And then she became the breadwinner of our family due, due to certain circumstances. So that's kind of like summer, a summarized version of kind of how Clever Oil Finance came about. Wow. That's really an incredibly moving story. So did it start from the blog or how did what we see today happen? Yeah, so 
I kind of shut down that personal blog because the personal blog was more like, I used to be a wedding photographer, by the way. That was one of my side hustles, a wedding and lifestyle photographer that allowed me to save that $100,000 um, in addition to my full-time job. So I would talk about my photography. I would talk about side hustles. I would talk about fashion and designer shoes and bags and then investing. And I would have like little savings challenges. So there are a few people from way back when who remember me from, from back then. It was a blogger and there was a whole blogger community, blogger.com, which is no longer around. And so I decided about when my kids were about 13 months old uh, that I was going to start something formal. And the name Clever Girl Finance just came to me. Um, I'm originally from Nigeria. We are a British colony and clever is the word for smart, right? Mm. So I'm like, yeah. And my mom was always like, hey, girl, what's happening, girl? So I'm like, you know what? Clever Girl Finance. It just came to me. And I started as a blog and I would write articles all by myself. So I was the everything. I was the marketer, the blogger, the writer, the janitor, all that stuff. Uh, I would just write articles. Um, and I kind of leverage what I had learned from my photography business in terms of managing a business and put that on top of that. And what I had learned with my business administration ma- minor and college, kind of put that on that to kind of create a little bit of structure on my business. But I didn't know anything about you know, social media. I was one of the first users on Instagram, by the way, because it was a photography platform at the beginning, right? And I used to, I used to share uh, my photographs on there. And Instagram was a very, very small, small little app. I think when I joined, it had like two reviews wow. in the app store. Because <laughs> it was a tool for photographers. Uh, so I was on there. So I was like, okay, I can, you know, I, I kind of knew I could use that for something. So I uh, started blogging. And then as an introvert, I was like, okay, I don't want this to be all about me. I want to create a platform where other women can find themselves. Like, sure, I have my own story. Um, and I hadn't shared my saving story of saving $100,000 because I had this big fear of not wanting to sound like I was bragging. So I didn't talk about myself, about that story on the blog at all at this point. So I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have other women who have accomplished something in their business or their finances or who are on their journey and are open to sharing, I'm going to feature them on the site. So I started doing interviews and I would interview different women, um, similar to how you would do a podcast, but this was in written form. Mm -hmm. And we would start posting these interviews on Instagram. I would start posting these interviews on Instagram and it sort of gained traction from there. And I would post motivational quotes along with the interviews and we kind of grew from there. And then after a while, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to do some one-on-one coaching just to understand what are women's struggles with money and also to bring some income into the business because I had invested $6,000 of my own money into starting the website, creating like a budgeting planner, which we've now evolved and have a different version on the site. Um, And then what else did I pay for? Um, Like logo design and stuff like that. And I also kind of did a lot of that myself because I have a certification in in web development, HTML, Java, that kind of stuff. So I kind of used my skill and then spent some money and launched this business. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do some one-on-one coaching because you know, the first year the business had made $200. I'm like, this is not not a business. This is a hobby. So let's try to make it a business. Let's try to make some money. So I did some one-on-one coaching um, to learn. And I learned, those are some of the best experiences because I got to learn so much about just women specifically and the struggle around money and financial confidence. And like, it was just so interesting. I, I value that experience I got from coaching back then so much. So with that, you know, the site started to gain traction. Visitors started to stop by. And one of my friends was like, you keep interviewing all these women, but you have this saving story because I would talk to my friends. Why don't you share it? And I was so hesitant to share this story. But then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write it and I'm, I'm going to 
I'm going to share, I'm going to write my disclaimers, right? My mom helped me pay for college. I had a partial scholarship, very privileged in that regard, but it came at a significant expense to her and my dad's retirement. Um, I did not have a sugar daddy. I did not have a, a rich boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I was very, very single at this point. And these are all the things that I did to save this $100,000 over a three and a half year period. So I laid it all out and that story just took off. Um, it became viral on social media. It started getting picked up by podcasts. It got a two-page spread in Money Magazine. I did just so much press over that. Even now, years later, it's still like it, it was on the front cover of an Irish newspaper <laughs> about two months ago. <laughs> they reached out to me asking they could sh- share the story because the tips are practical. Yeah. They don't expire. So even up until now, that was one of the catalysts sharing that story that brought in an audience. And so I got to a point where I was like, okay, I know that I'm good at creating content um, and making some money from coaching. Let's establish like a program based on what I've learned because there's only one of me and there's only so much coaching I could I can do. So we decided to create something called, I decided, I keep saying we because we have, there's a team now, <laughs> but I decided to create something, this is just me, called the Carrero Finance Accountability Program. And basically it was a support system for women who wanted to change their finances and you would come and join our community. And every week there was something that was going on to motivate you as you took your steps to becoming debt-free, to save and to invest. And it was over six months. So that was the first thing that we did. I did, I did, and started generating revenue into the business. And then I kind of got to this roadblock where I was like, okay, I've done everything I can do. I figured out social media to the, to the best of my ability. I've learned marketing, but I, I, I need more help. I need to be able to figure out how to grow this business. So I went online and started searching for things. And then I found the SBA, Small Business Administration. And I found that they had a mentoring program through something called SCORE. Org. And I met two mentors at a local university and they sat down and they really like just gave it to me. They're like, listen, you should have a podcast. And I've been wanting to do a podcast, but I was too shy. You should be doing outreach. You should be reaching out to brands for partnerships. You should be, they gave me in the two, uh, one or two hours we sat down, they gave me all of these ideas. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to take this and go run off with me. So I did that. And then I started just, I realized the value of having that mentorship advisory so I started looking for additional opportunities as I continued to grow the business, made my first hire, just expanding our content, growing our accountability program. And then I did the 10,000 small businesses program with Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. uh, specifically for, for women. They had a cohort with Tory Birch, the Tory Birch Foundation. I did that, learned so much more about business structures, about hiring, about um, just legal, everything, right? And then I was like, okay, I, I'm going to find an advisory board. I got my first formal advisor, board a seat on my board, <laughs> making more money. And then I applied for the Techstars Accelerator, which we talked about, which is like, that was a significant, like major opportunity in terms of the network, in terms of the people I met, uh, and in terms of being able to scale the company. And at that point, I got to a crossroads. So the question was, do I build a nice lifestyle business that you know, this has replaced my full-time salary by far now. It's a very comfortable income. I can keep this about, you know, bola and this, you know, like just this angle. Or do I pursue a business of impact, right? Which means that I sacrifice these profits to grow the business mm-hmm. and 
reach scale, to reach more women or attempt to reach as many women as possible. And that was that was kind of like a, a struggle for me, like this this crossroad. Like I'm comfortable with this lifestyle business, right? It's I can save. I don't have to worry about not having a 401k. You know, I have a, one person who's supporting me. But then there was something in me that just said, you want to help as many women as possible because I would every now and then get an email that just talked about how something we had shared or created had changed their lives, how they had paid off this much debt, how they had started investing, how that like significant. I'm like, wow, this can be helpful to so many more women. So coming out of Techstars, I chose the path of, okay, let's pursue scale as much as possible. So we shifted more into a content focused company additional hires, rebranded, redesigned, started focusing on SEO. We left the accountability program and then created 30 courses, bite-sized courses um, that were paid at the time and just started pursuing growth, right? How many women can we reach? And the question I always get from that is, why weren't you happy with the lifestyle business you had built and just earning that money. But for me, it was it was no longer about the money, right? I'd gone to a point where I'd gone, I had comfortable savings. This is no longer about how much can I make from this business. It was not about how many people can I can I help, right? It's so it's now impact first before profits. And that has always been really, really important to me. So one of the things I struggled with in order to keep the business going was charging people for courses, charging people for financial support. Because when people come to Clever All Finance, they're usually coming at a point of need. They've made mistakes. They're trying to change their financial situation. They're in desperation. Something mm-hmm. serious has happened. They need financial help. Or they're, they're trying to pick up the pieces. So I never felt comfortable charging people money when they're trying to make a change. And the argument I would get when I had this conversation with people would be like, well, these people will spend money on all these other things. They'll spend money shopping. They'll spend money on courses about business and stuff. But so they should be able to spend on their personal finances. And I get that. But at the same time, when somebody's coming at a point of need, I don't want to have to turn them away. But we are also trying to run a business. We're trying to keep the doors open. I have to pay the people I have hired. So we continue to charge. So the pandemic came around and we went into lockdown here, March 13th. Between March 13th and March 18th, we got an overwhelming, so much traffic to the site. I guess people, again, this was the point of need. Oh my God, I can't go to work. Oh my God, I need to figure out my finances. Oh my God. We got so many messages of desperation. It was shocking to me. Like it actually made me a little scared. Like what is going on? And we have this content that's behind a paywall and these people need help. So I decided we had a quick meeting and I decided that, you know what, we're going to make this, this, these courses free, figure out how to replace this income. At the time, the courses were doing six figures for us. And I was like, well, it's like, let's put on our parachute and jump. <laughs> we'll, figure <out> how to, <laughs> we'll figure out how to build the plane. <laughs> On the way down, right? And um, similar to my personal finances, we had created a business buffer. So there was money for people to get paid. So I'm like, don't worry, you'll get paid. Let's do this because, again, impact for supporting our community first. So we made our courses free on March 19th. And we got like 30,000 people in to take these free courses. Just like, thank you so much. It's so helpful. And then decided to make the courses free permanently. And then it's like, okay, let's figure out how to replace the wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> so from there, you know, just by making that decision, um, it was a game changer for the business in, in 2020 because number one, our traffic skyrocketed brand awareness for us because other people got to learn about Clever Girl Finance through word of mouth. Um, we had started taking a serious focus on SEO. So we do a lot of content on the site and we just became a very attractive brand brand, not just in the financial industry, but in the women's women, anything that was parallel to women's lifestyle and stuff like that. So we ended up 4Xing or 5Xing the income we we're making from our courses just from that decision. And I remember the first two months after I was like, oh my God, I'm going to figure this out. We, need, we have like other small income sources, but like how the hell are we going to figure this out? So that happened. And I learned a couple of lessons from that. I learned a couple of lessons that Number one, I needed to trust my gut. That was a very much a gut decision, but I knew it was the right decision and I would figure it out and we did. Number two, that business buffer that we had created was the smartest decision, right? Because we could power through because you saw in the pandemic, so many businesses were shuttering, closing down. Uh, number three, staying true to our mission, empowering women to achieve financial wellness. And that's what we did because there was also a window of time on social media where I saw a lot of people saying, I told you so. You should have had the, the emergency savings. You should have had the budget. I'm like, no, that's not okay. Some people are, are, are here in this situation because they're recovering from a loss of a loved one due to COVID and income has been removed. Someone is sick, a terminal illness. So many issues that were happening. Why would you say I told you so? Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody starts from somewhere. Everybody, a lot of times people need to rebuild. So staying to our, to our mission, we did that. And then diversifying our business income that was that now became huge priority so yes courses was one of our main income we had the planners I was still doing coaching a little bit of coaching at that time we had some affiliate revenue but really getting serious about not only diversifying the income but diversifying the business business streams as well so that became a focus so um, you know in terms of how we make money and Today, now creating an extension of the Clever Girl Finance brand into other types of content that are not in the personal finance space. It's a so, long story, but. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. And especially, I mean, you would assume that if the courses were your major moneymaker, getting rid of that would be detrimental to the business, but you proved otherwise. I, but I didn't know that, right? And I, there was a video on either on YouTube or somewhere Instagram where I'm like, our courses are free and you see me cry. Because I was also going through a lot of emotions, right? Um, my mom is a nurse. My sister-in-law is a nurse. My other sister-in-law is a doctor. My husband's a physician. Um, these are people that were going to work every single day. And I was, I was stressed out. There was no vaccine at the time. They were treating sick people. My husband's boss died on March 13th. Um, I was, I, ha I was for a series of months, I had super high anxiety. I was just on edge because my mom was, she wanted to go see, she was, she's an infant nurse. She wanted to go see her babies. My husband had to go to work. My sister-in-law had to go to work. Um, you know, and I'm like, this is life happening and people are asking for help. And we're like, oh no, you got to pay us $200 for a course. Like, what are we doing here? Like, if we can't help people right now at this point of need, when, can we help them? And what is this mission that we are, we are saying that we stand for? So all those things led into making that decision. And I was like, even if our income takes a hit, we will use this business backup fund and we'll figure something out. We'll figure something out. I've been able to figure this out in the past. We'll figure it out. And that was the, the way I was moving forward. Because back then, that was the end of the world. 
right? Yeah. So if the world is ending, you know what? Let's do what we can to power. That was that was my mindset back then. And I had always struggled with, like I said, charging people who were at the point of need, but we needed to make make um, money. So what I learned, part of what I learned is that there are other ways to generate revenue and support the audience that you're committed to supporting. And what are those other ways now that Clever Girl Finance is primarily making money? Yeah, so we make money in a variety of ways now. So all about diversification, which is really important in your personal finances, in your business. So through brand partnerships, Mm -hmm. uh, we're a huge content creator, not just for ourselves, but for other brands. So there's a lot of content out there that's created that nobody ever knows. We do a lot of ghost content for big brands. Um, So brand partnerships, content creation, we have affiliate marketing, we had advertising. Um, I do a lot of speaking on behalf of the brand. Um, We have our our physical products, our courses. Courses are not paid, sorry. Our physical products, planners. So there's a bunch of different things. So we create content on our side that we monetize and we create content for other brands and other platforms that gets monetized. And then just recently we launched an extension of the brand called Clever Girl Author, which is focused on the literally aspect of women who want to write, people who want to step into freelancing, people who want to write books. Um, And that's not another arm of the business. One of the brand extensions that we're building out, you know, on a list of a few others that we have planned down the road as a way to not just diversify our income, but also diversify the business. Why did you choose to focus on women? So that's a great question. And I get asked that a lot. You know, people say personal finance is for everybody. And I agree 100%. Everybody can definitely leverage the content we create. Everybody is welcome. Um, But You know, the focus on women is very personal. Obviously, I am a woman. I'm a woman of color. I'm a black woman. But it also goes back to my background. So, like I mentioned earlier, I'm originally from Nigeria. Nigeria is a British colony. And uh, back then, I learned a lot of things that were not to the benefit of women, right? So, my dad is a twin. has a twin sister. My dad has two PhDs. He's an econometrician, um, mathematician, super smart guy. I love my dad. And his twin sister is not formally educated, which means my aunt does not read or write. She, you know, she doesn't speak English, uh, but she's educated in the way, in the sense that she has her own trading business, small goods. She knows how to count money, but she's not formally educated in the way that my dad was. She didn't go to grade school, high school, college, none of that. And the reason for that was because my grandfather had a big distrust of the colonialists going back to slave trade and when people would go missing and he just didn't trust them. And they now brought this formal education, which is the education that's pretty much across the world right now, uh, this standard of education. He felt that if anybody was going to be able to learn this and use it to the best of the ability, it would be his male children. Um, because in a, in a way, in that world, you know, the male child was more prized possession. They're smarter. They're the heads of, they become the heads of the family. They can figure things out. Whereas there was a woman's place. You know, you get married, you have kids. <laughs> um, you, stay in, you stay back there. Uh, and that's just what it was. My grandmother experienced that, right? She, she was one of five wives, multiple children. And, it was, you know, her place was to raise the kids. And eventually she, she started a small business to take care of her children when my grandfather was struggling with supporting all these wives and all these children that he has. So Nigeria is polygamous. So my dad's twin sister did not get the opportunity to, to go to college. And I always imagined what her life would have been 
if she had two PhDs like my dad, if she was this accomplished person, right? She's accomplished in her own right, but she didn't have the opportunity. And then you think back, you come back now to today's world. Let's talk about our generation, present generation. Um, we're in a position where we're earning more money than our mothers and our grandmothers on average, right? The gender wage gap exists. It's impacting us. There's an investing wage gap, an investing gap as a result of that gender wage gap, but we're earning more money, right? Today's world, many women are choosing to be single mothers, to be, to not to get married, to be, you know, many women are breadwinners, sole household earners. So we're now taking this ownership of finances. But when you think back to where we're coming from and you think back to what was deemed as a woman's place, right, uh, whether it's your mother or your grandmother, we all have a good recipe passed down from our grandmother and our, our mothers. But we, we don't necessarily have a portfolio of financial knowledge that was given to us because back then, this is not to aggregate everybody. I'm just talking in certain demographics, certain groups. Back then, it was not a woman's place, right? The dad goes to work, comes home, pulls his sons aside, talks about business and all that stuff. And the woman talks to the daughters about how to make dinner and how to, you know, the next best recipe. And not because they didn't want to talk about money, but because they had not been taught about money by their mothers and their grandmothers. So, there, there hasn't been this generational transfer of financial knowledge, which has led to women not having that much financial confidence, right? Or being shy about money because we don't know if we're talking about it the right way. And of course, there are those grandmothers, great-grandmothers who have to stand on their own two feet and figure out their finances. But for a, a huge majority of people, this is what it was, right? We didn't get that financial knowledge from our families, now, when you look at minority demographics, there, there was a whole is a whole history of other things that happened where financial wellness was not even an opportunity, right? Um, slavery, segregation, Jim Crow era. There are so many systemic issues that you couldn't pursue financial wellness. Um, and then you think about the fact that in the United States, it wasn't until like 1976 that a woman could open a bank account on her own. Before then, you needed a man to co-sign to have a credit card to, right? So those are all things that are close to my heart when it comes to the balance of opportunity and knowledge with finances between men and women that make me focus on women, right? Like I said, personal finance is universal, but for me, just empowering women to have that financial confidence, to talk about money, and then now transfer this knowledge generationally, not just to their daughters, but to their sons, so that that mindset of a woman's place changes is really important, right? Um, there's a lot of men today who feel intimidated by a successful woman. Why, right? You should consider her your peer. You should consider your partner, your team player. You're both here to win. You're on the same team. And you also have to acknowledge the gender wage gap, which I talked about, right? You look at it, women what women earn 20% less than men. You break it down by, by demographic, Latinas, Black women, Native American women, et cetera. And the statistics are just worse and worse as you go down the list. So we're earning less. We're living longer on average than our male counterparts. We're choosing to be single. We're single mothers, sole household earners, breadwinners. And we have this investment gap, which is because we're earning less, we cannot invest as much. We have to be able to be strategic and, and mindful about how we manage our money. So that's why I focus on women, right? Again, yeah. our platform is open to everybody, but I just have a special place in my heart, starting with my aunt, about financial wellness for women. That's beautiful. You told me off camera earlier about this experience you had when you were on the radio. 
Can you share that with the audience? Yeah. So we're talking about financial confidence and just challenges around just women and money and women who do well with their money. And there's always a reason that people attribute to why you're able to do well, right? It's because you are married to a rich guy. You have a, (laughs) you don't have kids, you're divorced. There's always a reason where some people struggle to, to just accept a woman who has achieved financial success on her own. And there's nothing wrong with that because we don't question successful men. So I had done a radio interview around the time that my $100,000 saving story was kind of going viral. And I was invited to the radio station to talk about um, just the steps I took to save as a way to motivate their audience. And it was a virtual conversation. And I remember going to this dialing in and, you know, I started sharing my tips, how I did it. I was super excited to be there. And during the commercial break, they forgot to mute me. And (laughs) I could hear them talking about me. And I heard them say, you know, I call BS on this. There's no way she saved $100,000 by herself. She must have had a rich boyfriend. And in that moment, I was so upset. I was like, I should just hang up this this call and forget about this radio interview. But I had to think beyond the hosts and focus now instead on the audience who were not part of this unmuted conversation, right? Who had no idea and just share my tips and keep it moving. But what that reminded me was, and it was, it was guys that was interviewing me. Uh, what that reminded me of was just, or what that reinforced to me was my mission to empower women, right? Again, it, it's really difficult sometimes for some certain people to see a successful woman and take it in. That should even be more motivation, right? Because it's it's this idea of conforming us to a certain place. This is where you belong and how dare you do better than this. But I believe that when women win, we we all win, right? Um, we're able to teach our sons and our daughters, right? And change the narrative around what is a woman's place and change the narrative around women and money. So that was an experience that wasn't pleasant, but it didn't deter me from my mission of empowering women to achieve financial wellness, especially women like me, because it's really important. People will always have them to say about it, and, and that's fine. Yeah. Why do you think the Clever Girl Finance brand has become so successful? <laughs> that's a hard question. No, no, I, I think that... Um, I think we are a work in progress, right? There are many goals and visions and ideas I have for this business. But I think it's because we stand by our mission. And like I said earlier, our mission is to empower women to achieve financial wellness on their own terms. And that's very important. We don't have a philosophy. There's no one size fits all. There's no one certain way you must do things. And we also try to focus on being relatable, not just with my story, because the business is not, it's well beyond me at this point, but with the stories of all the women that we share on our podcast, wherever we feature someone or the women who write articles on our site, uh, our writers, um, where no matter who you are, no matter your financial situation, no matter your background, you can find somebody or some content that you can relate to. It may not be my experience. You know, I may be far removed from you, but there's somebody within our community somewhere that you can relate to and find inspiration from and be motivated by. So I think really for us is just standing by our mission and putting our audience first, right? For me, it's impact over profits. And it's, you know, I don't want to say that from a privileged perspective where it's like, oh my God, you don't care about money because you have all this money. <laughs> it's not that. It's even if this business did not make any money, that would still be my my mission to help first. Because I saw, you know, 
my mom is sitting there with her friends. I saw what happened to her best friend. Um, I remember her very clearly, um, my mom's friend who committed suicide. I, I look at my aunties. I look at my grandmothers. These are women who grew up in a different world, who didn't have the opportunity we have today. And now I'm in a position where I can help other women succeed. Why not? Right. So that's what I mean when I say it's impact over profits. That's my focus first. Bola, you've done so many amazing things already from being a best-selling author to creating this huge brand that has helped so many women. What do you see as the next five, 10-year plan for yourself? For myself or for the business? I guess both, <laughs> for yourself and the business. So for myself is to just experience my family, have great experiences with my family and just live life, right? Life is short. If there's anything that we learned in the pandemic, it's that just appreciate every single moment. And for the business, if, for me, it's just continue to impact women and people positively, right? Continue to adhere to our mission um, and continue to grow, diversify our, our business. Um, that's something that I'm excited to do. Um, I've been very much in the personal finance space for like the last seven years. And so now we're stepping out into other realms and it's exciting. Um, so that's kind of like what the focus is. But priority is just helping people. That's just really why we're here, why Clever World Finance does what it does. And without the people that we help, we wouldn't be here. So so the last tradition we have, the closing <laughs> tradition, the podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is about Bola Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Bola Taught Me This? Okay, so I want people to walk away feeling that Bola taught me that it's okay to make mistakes, but it's important that I get clear on my why, why I want to achieve what I want to achieve on my own terms, independent of what anybody expects or thinks of me, and that I need to take action starting today, no matter how small the action is. I love that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> If you enjoyed today's episode, I'll put the link to Bola's company, Clever Girl Finance, in the show notes. And I have a huge favor to ask. It would mean a lot if you could take a moment to leave a review for the podcast. Even just one sentence is perfect. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with me today. And I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.